following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Today, um, I'm going to be speaking uh, from one of the Psalms. It's going to be Psalm 13. Um, and the message of my sermon is actually, I need some singing lessons. So, um, so today's message yeah, comes from the book of Psalms. Uh, the ancient Greek uh, and Hebrew words for psalm actually refer to um, songs that are accompanied by instruments. Um, so- psalms are actually songs that are to be sung. Uh, singing uh, is an ancient, uh, it's a universal activity. Um, primitive people, they sang to invoke the gods, um, to celebrate rites of passage, to recount histories um, and, the, and the heroics of um, um, their past heroes. Um, some cultures even regard singing uh, as uh, the source of human existence. Some have written that song could actually be the divine language of the Trinity. Maybe we can connect with the divine when we sing. Though I know my attempts at singing in the shower, in the car, or at a, karaoke, or a karaoke night are very far from divine. Song is important because it helps shape cultural identity. It defines and it unifies groups of people together. Songs, they convey messages they express emotions, they share values and relate experiences. Many songs become anthems that represent nations, cultures, and generations. Over the past couple of decades, uh, one of the most popular songs, as you know, in New Zealand is uh, the song Loyal by Dave Dobbin. It is a strong attachment to New Zealanders. It expresses one of our most appreciated virtues, which is loyalty. The chorus, I'm not going to sing it for you, but it goes like this. Loyal. I, will, I say you're loyal too. I know you're loyal. I'll feel your loyal truth. And call me loyal. I will hold you loyal too. And we are loyal. Keep it that way. I don't know. <laughs> um, the, the importance of song is especially significant in times uh, of personal or cultural struggle. As with black Americans in the time of slavery, songs gave a voice to their experiences and emotions, but they were also a means of communication. One of their most well-known songs is Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Coming Forth to Carry Me Home. This speaks of finding hope in a future redemption, but historians also recognize it as a coded message. Many of the verses detailed strategies of of escape, such as wading in the water, which was a, a way of escape from bloodhounds. But the Psalms are also a particular type of song. The Hebrew word for Psalm is related to the word hallelujah, which is made up of two words. The first signifies praise, and the second names God. So the Psalms are a book of praises to God. The Psalms also have a great presence in the New Testament. They are quoted more than any other New Testament book other than Isaiah. This is because the Psalms are highly prophetic and messianic. The Psalms foretell Jesus' arrival hundreds of years in advance. They describe his future ministry, They depict his suffering and death on the cross, and they exalt him as king. The anthems of the Old Testament people are then sung by the people in the New Testament, and they continue to be sung today. Would you please turn with me now, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, to Psalm 13. Um, If you don't, I'll just read it out loud for you. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all day? 
How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is significant because it so closely relates to Psalm 22, the great lament of Jesus. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Both these psalms cry out in experiences of abandonment and anguish, but both are also punctuated with praise. These psalms are also linked to Isaiah 53, the chapter on the suffering servant. Psalm 13 and Isaiah 53 share key themes in language and their displays of sorrow, great anguish, their impression of salvation, and their earnest appeals. David's appeal to God is the center of Psalm 13. We know this because, because the psalm is a form of chiastic poetry. Think of the movie The Mighty Ducks. This ice hockey team had an offensive move called the Flying V, where they attacked in a V formation. Think of a flock of ducks flying in the sky. The center position is important because it gives direction and stability to all the following members. Each subsequent pair are related in position. This is what a chiasm is. It is where all the pairs follow in the shape of a V from the center. David's appeal in verse 3 is the center. On either side of it, we find David speaking of the triumph of his enemy, followed by the emotions of his heart, and then his experiences of God at either end. What it provided ancient Israelites, and now us, is motivation to appeal and give adoration to God while experiencing anguish. We need this encouragement because anguish usually has the opposite effect. It compels us to turn away when we actually have a great need to turn to God. I want you to leave here to, I want you to leave here today reminded of the confidence that you can have in approaching and appealing to God, the God who is with you in all of your circumstances. He is the one to whom we can make our greatest appeal, our need for salvation. I've broken this passage into three sections uh, based on three motivations. The first is questioning God. Um, it's a, built around the motivation of anguish. The second is uh, David's threefold plea. Um, this is the motivation of appeal. And the third is David's response to God in the midst of his suffering. Uh, this is the motivation of adoration. I'm sure um, the experience that we discover that David uh, writes about is one that we have all wrestled with. That is one of the great benefits of using the Psalms. They help us express words where we can't find them for ourselves. We begin David's song in the first two verses. In this section, David gives his first motivation for turning to God. This reason is enduring anguish. He demands God to answer, how long? He isn't asking the question that your children might from the back seat of the car. Dad, mum, how long until we get there? It might be closer to the question asked by a church intern of their pastor after several months of waiting. How long until you take me fishing? We all ask these questions of how long when we are made to wait beyond our expectations. Of course, the causes of David's anguish are much more severe than my mere impatience. But it is right to ask questions. We shouldn't bottle them inside. We need to give them a voice. 
questioning God was actually a very common and accepted custom in biblical times. In Genesis 15, we find Abraham questioning God's promise. What can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Elysia of Damascus? Gideon is another example. He questions God's purpose. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Job must be the greatest um, example of questioning God. In the midst of his anguish, he asks, What have I done to you, O watcher of men? The question, how long, is also connected to final redemption. In the book of Revelation, the author asks, How long will it take for Jesus to return to judge and redeem the earth? The Bible is clear. It is not wrong to question God. It is an appropriate response to the experiences of our lives. In questioning, we give recognition to the fact that this world and our lives are not what they should be, or not what they're meant to be. Something has been lost, something has been broken and corrupted. You may have experienced this yourself in a number of ways. Maybe you're wondering if you'll ever meet that special someone. How long? Maybe you've been struggling with infertility. How long? Maybe it is waiting for someone to fulfill a commitment. How long? Maybe it's waiting for rest after a long period of exhausting work. How long? Or like David, you feel forgotten by God, attacked by people, or struggle with depression and anxiety. And you ask, how long must I go through this? The level of David's anguish has led him to the end of his strength. He has nothing left. That's why he repeats the question four times in succession. And the urgency rings higher every time it is asked. David expresses his anguish in three relationships. In his spiritual life with God, in the inner parts of his being, and and in his relationships with others. First, he asks God, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? The The imagery of the face is extremely significant. It represents the essence of a person. To see the face of someone is to know, identify, and communicate with them. Psalm 31 and 67 say to have the Lord's face shine upon you is to be in his favor and blessing. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' face shone like the sun. He told his disciples, come, do not be afraid. Here he receives them, dispels their fear, and he bids them to come. In contrast, a hidden or covered face refuses to be known. It refuses to give favor. On the cross, the Father turned his face, that is his favor, away from the Son because he bore the sin and judgment of his people. In taking our place of judgment for sin, he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are the ones who deserve God's disfavor because we all turn and worship things in his place, whether it is our reputation, our finances, our family, our friends, our possessions, or our work. We don't deserve his favorable eyes upon us. But because the Father turned his face away from the Son in judgment, he is able to turn to look favorably on us. Jesus bore the Father's ultimate disfavor so our anguish might only be temporary. Turning away from God in his ways is sin. It is our sin that produces our greatest anguish as it separates us from God. David feels something of this. And we share this experience too. We can struggle to feel God's favor when we face enduring anguish. We question whether God has forgotten or disfavors us. 
And how are we to respond to this? Are you afraid of questioning God? Do you turn and run from Him? Jonah got himself in a whale of a problem because of his turning and running from God. Unbelief turns worship away from God and hatred and pessimism. Instead, faith approaches God in anguish. It turns towards God with questions and emotions. Faith expresses itself as it is to God. The second relationship is with the self. In verse 2, David says, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? The distance David feels with God leads him to wrestle with his inner anguish. It is constantly on his mind. Most versions of the Bible translate David as taking counsel in his soul. The Hebrew root of the word counsel actually means to pierce. It has been used to describe the wounds caused by the piercing from weapons used in battle, such as from an arrow, sword, or spear. The clearest New Testament image of piercing is of Jesus' side being pierced as he hung nailed to the cross. Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. In a similar way, David feels he is receiving judgment, and so his anguish overwhelmingly pours out in song. How long will sorrow be in my heart all the day? He keeps going over it and over it again. Have you ever lain awake at night, tormented by thoughts of distress and anxiety? Have your dreams taken shape around the situations you face? Have you woken up the mo- uh, in the morning with the bedsheets all disheveled and contorted, wondering at uh, the movements your body made during the night? The conditions of our bedsheets are the image of David's struggle. He does not keep his feelings to himself. His faith compels him to express his heart as it is to God. But David also talks of a third relationship. This has to do with other people. For, for him, it is his enemy. At the end of verse 2, he says, How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Two types of enemies appear in the, New Testament, oh, sorry, in the Old Testament or in the Psalms. The first is adversaries. The second type is non-human. It is spiritual. The Apostle, said, uh, the, the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and its head is Satan who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In Psalm 13, David experiences malicious forces trying to exalt themselves over him. It isn't the comparison of an Olympic gold or silver medal It is exaltation in the sense of domination, control, and lordship. And David wonders if he has any strength left um, to, to hold it back. Who are your enemies? Who oppresses, exploits, attacks, slanders, or despises you? Are there people at work who exploit you? Are there people in your neighborhood who oppose you? Are there people at school who slander you? Or are there people in church or even at home who despise you? How are we to respond in such, such, in such situations? Before anything else, we need to bring our anguish to God in prayer and song. Faith should not, sh- not seek to shelter or numb real and sinister threats. Instead, faith should reveal its adversaries as they are to God. Psalm 13 teaches us that in this life, we will experience enduring anguish with, uh, with God in ourselves and with others. We should be motivated to turn and express our anguish as it is to God. 
Psalm 13 not only teaches us to bring our anguish to God, um, but it also teaches us to bring our appeals to God. The first two verses are marked by the fourfold repetition of the question, how long? In verse 3, David's emotions take a different shift uh, from the anguish of his condition to an appeal for rescue. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. This is the center of the chiasm, the flying V. First, David asked God to consider him and then to respond to him. When I was first applying to study at seminary, I found there was no way that my wife and I could afford to do it by ourselves. We had to request financial aid. We gave our, the, the information of our current position uh, and appealed to the seminary for help. David is doing something of this sort with God, although at a much deeper level. He sings to God, communicating his condition of anguish, and then appeals for him to bring him out of his poverty. David names God in his appeal. He says, O Lord, my God. Today, people are generally given a name because their parents think it's cool. Like Gwyneth Paltrow calling one of her daughters Apple. Maybe she's the apple of her mother's eye. But we find in the Old Testament, names are usually given with specific meaning. Do you notice how David slightly changes how he names God? In verse 1, he calls him Lord. But in verse 3, he calls him both Lord and God, or and my God. Lord is from the Hebrew Adon. It is actually the way that God is named in Genesis 2, uh, where the Lord meets personally with Adam and Eve. It is his personal name, which is God with us. The name God, or my God, on the other hand, is from the Hebrew, uh, from the Hebrew word Elohim, um, and it represents God's transcendence. It signifies a distinction between creator and creation. It is how he is addressed in the six days of creation. So in the first two verses, David pours out his anguish to the personal God. In verse 3, however, he then also appeals to God's creative power and transcendence over creation. He appeals for God to exercise his control over his situation. He says, O Lord my God, that is, the Lord who is intimately involved with his people. And then he says, um, uh, he calls to the God who is creator, transcendent, and in control of everything. David, what David is doing is asking God to consider him based on God's name and not his own. To consider has a sense of being reckoned or judged, and David wants it to be based on God's character. David asks God to think of him as faithful even when he is faithless. As Christians, we can do the same based on Christ. We can make our appeals to God based uh, on who he is and on his name. We don't have to worry about or, or, or think about how worthy we are. When God turns his face to us, he sees the character of Christ. Christ too appeals for us, mediating on our behalf, so we are not alone in our appeals. Faithful people are moved to make their appeals to God. The pairing of Lord and God is also significant because it is connected to God's covenant faithfulness. First Chronicles uses the same pairing of God's name in the context of creating covenant with his people. He says, For your people Israel, you made your own people forever. You, O Lord, became their God, and the house of David your servant is established before you forever. This emphasizes David as, uh, David's position as the beneficiary of particular promises. So whatever happens to David reflects back onto God. 
David then expresses his petition with three elements. He pleads for God to look on him, to answer him, and to enlighten his eyes so he won't die. His appeal is is motivated by the desire for renewal, but ultimately for salvation. Let me ask you something. Have you ever asked a question out loud and then answered it for yourself? This is what David does. In verse 1, he questions whether God has taken blessing and favor away from him. But then in verse 3, he answers his own question. He says, God is a faithful covenant partner and who, unlike humans, even New Zealanders who sing about loyalty, he is truly loyal, faithful, and present. He will give, give David his ultimate favor. Psalm 13 teaches us that we can approach God because he is the covenant Lord who is intimately involved in the salvation and renewal of his people. But he is also the creator God who is transcendent and in control. These are characteristics that should motivate us to bring our appeals to God with confidence. But Psalm 13 not only teaches us that we should make our appeals to God in our anguish, um, it also teaches us that it is appropriate to also bring adoration to God. In verses 5 and 6, we find another shift in the psalm. Even though David's circumstances remain the same, his condition seems to change. He now gives adoration to God in three ways, by trusting, rejoicing, and singing. In verse 5, he says, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. He first sets up a contrast by saying, I have trusted in the Lord. David says, I have, implying he has already trusted and continues to trust, even within his anguish. And to give, and to give some clarity, in the original Hebrew, he actually emphasizes himself by saying, I twice. He says, I, I have trusted. The presence of these multiple eyes shows that David's confidence uh, in, within his current conditions are part of God's purpose. It shows a determination, a resoluteness. That is what David says about his trust in God. Determination reminds me of a, um, a guy I go to lunch with every week after church. His name is Dick Andrews. Uh, he's about 85. Um, yeah, we always go down to this local restaurant. He's been having a lot of raccoon problems recently. Uh, what, like one of the amazing things about the States is just watching squirrels and raccoons. He's got all these bird feeders out the back of his house. Um, he's been battling them for about a year or two and just trying to find all these different tactics to get rid of them. Um, you know, being a- 85, he, he often repeats himself to me, um, you know, over, over the weeks, and he's always like, I, I'm going to be victorious. I'm going to beat these raccoons and these squirrels. Um, it got to such a point, though, that he actually uh, electrified his bird feeders. Um, so it's pretty funny. Like, I'll be sitting out the back of his house sometimes, and you hear this zap, and a squirrel kind of gets airborne off the back, you know. Um, but this is part of what David's determination is. You know, he, he says, I, I am going to trust. The Bible gives at least three reasons for giving, uh, uh, for adoration within suffering. First, our adoration is a foretaste of what God will receive in our ultimate salvation. Presently, we adore him with mixed motives and loves. But when we are redeemed, when our world is rid of sin and suffering, we will adore him purely as our only true love. Second, even though God does not necessarily create suffering, he is able to use it for good. James says, consider, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, 
And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This might not be presently comforting, especially if you are enduring intense hardship, such as the loss of a loved one, uh, abuse, financial ruin, or disability. I can't adequately answer why God allows such things. But our world does cry out in these for redemption. We adore God because He can use our experiences to shape us and then to use us to support the lives of those who are broken and hurting in the same way. The third reason we can offer adoration to God in suffering is because we share Christ's mission as we suffer for him. The Apostle Apostle Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Where do you turn in your anguish? Do you escape your hurt by fleeing to your work, to television, the internet, food, shopping, or by isolating yourself? Do you take your anguish out on other people? Do you verbally accost? Do you emotionally manipulate? Or do you try to control by intimidation? David offers us a third path. It is the path of trust. It is not how strong his own trust is. It is the strength of the object he is putting his trust in. He says his trust is in God's loving kindness. He uses the Hebrew word hesed. This refers to an unfailing love, a steadfast love, an enduring allegiance, a love of loyalty, a love that protects and pursues. This points to the names that David has already given to God the covenant Lord who is intimately involved with his people, um, with their salvation, and the God who is transcendent and in control. We hear it where the the Apostle Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or sword? This is a characteristic only the people of God know. David's trust is in the knowledge of God's character of hesed love. It is a commitment sung, uh, sorry, so, so David sings the song of trust, committing his life to the Lord and to his God. It is a commitment sung in the likeness of Christ. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because Christ committed himself to God in ultimate anguish, he made it possible for us to entrust ourselves in like manner. But David not only trusts, he says, I will rejoice in God's salvation. This is the second time that David mentions the heart. Remember that the psalm is a chiasm, like the formation of a flock of flying ducks. So in verse 5, David contrasts his rejoicing with the sorrow that he felt in verse 2. It would be easy to think that his heart has undergone some um, radical transformation, or maybe his circumstances have changed. It would be like the joy of finding your boss going on vacation for a month, uh, or your pastor disclosing all of his fishing secrets to you. But David experiences both joy and sorrow simultaneously. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, our, heart, our hearts ache, but we always have joy. So David says he rejoices in God's salvation, even though he endures temporary anguish. Without God, anguish is ultimately meaningless. But in God's reality, it finds purpose. But David sings because God has already dealt bountifully with him. David's bounty is God. 
the bounty David has received is the promise of God's presence and the promise of salvation to himself. David sings with God. David's experience of God's bounty and favor toward him contrasts his feelings of being forgotten and disfavored from verse 1. God has become David's song. God is described as the song and salvation of his people. Isaiah sings, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. We too can sing in hope because Christ has sung our ultimate songs. He has sung the song of ultimate anguish in our place. He has sung the song of appeal for deliverance on, on, on our behalf. And he has uh, sung the ultimate song of adoration, entrusting himself to the Father. Being resurrected to life, Christ has thereby created a way for us to sing our own songs of glory. We are able to sing in adoration in the midst of anguish, knowing that he has already transformed our present life and secured our future hope in him. So there are three responses David encourages us to have in the midst of our anguish. We trust, we rejoice, and we sing. This song of joy, while experiencing sorrow, is an anthem to all people. In conclusion, the song of David in Psalm 13 is the song of Christ. It begins expressing anguish, moving to appeal, and culminating in adoration. For the child of God, these motivate us to approach him in asking the question, how long? Being confident he has already answered by turning his face and responding in his son having considered us and reckoned us faithful even while we've been faithless. We are confident because he is the Lord of covenant who is intimately involved in the salvation and renewal of his people, and he is the God who is the creator. He is transcendent. He is in control. Psalm 13 teaches us that we have real reason to adore God in the midst of our anguish. We adore him by trusting in his hesed character of love. We adore him by rejoicing in his salvation that he has given us in Christ. We adore him by singing of how bountifully he has already dealt with us. Christ is God's voice, and the gospel message is ultimately his song. And this song becomes an anthem of God's people and a light to the nations, telling of the great favor we have received as Christ has turned his face towards us. God wants you to share your anguish with him. We should be motivated to turn to him in our appeal, appeal to, uh, to, to have him consider you based on Christ. Adore the God who is totally trustworthy and loyal. Adore the God who is the ultimate origin of our joy and our salvation. Adore the God who is the source of every present and future bounty. Do you know God this way? Where else can you turn with your anguish? Where else can you place your trust? Like the song Loyal being a part of New Zealand's identity, the song of anguish to adoration is the anthem that identifies us from all other communities. It can now be yours. Leave here with the confidence in the God who is with you in whatever circumstances you go through. Turn to him knowing the Father is able to turn to look favorably on you. Jesus bore the, the Father's ultimate disfavor so our anguish might only be temporary. And so his favor toward you and the songs you will sing may endure. Would you please pray with me? Father, and we just come before you today. You are an awesome God. You are great. So often, Father, 
um, and, and, and almost in every moment, Lord, um, we turn from you. Um, you know, in so many ways, uh, we don't deserve the favor that you have for us, Lord. But I'm just so thankful that you've called us together. You've called a people to your own. That you've given up your son so that we might come to know you. That we might come to know your salvation. Um, that we might come to know the bounty um, that it is of having a relationship with you. And I just pray for everyone here today, Lord, that um, uh, even if there's just been one thing um, that I've said today, Lord, that sticks with them, um, that they would come to know you as you've worked through uh, the message today. Um, Lord, if there's been anything uh, that's been wavered in what I've said, then just take it from the hearts and minds of everyone. Um, Lord, but I just pray that um, in community that we'd all come to know you and to worship you, Lord, um, that together uh, we glorify you uh, amidst other people. I pray for all those who are currently um, experiencing it like, it, like any form of anguish, um, that they would know you, um, that they would seek you in those moments, Lord, and that you would let them see and experience the love that you have for them. Um, and ultimately, Lord, that they would come to know that their need for salvation and because of the sin uh, uh, within us, um, um, that we need Christ, Lord, um, to, to, to be reunited with you. And I just want to lift up everyone here to your glory and I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.